Good morning. It's great to see everybody who's here. What a wonderful day. What a beautiful day. I feel like I haven't been here in a few weeks, and it's because I haven't. And uh, I'm super thankful for the opportunity to be back and just to worship together. We've got so many visitors, visitors from sister congregations up and down the state of California. We've got visitors from Tennessee, from Texas, and we just want to say that we love you and we're thankful that you're here. Maybe you're a visitor from the community and this is your first time being here. We love you and we pray that you feel loved and that we could all help each other get to heaven. It's a beautiful day, like I said, and we're just here to remember Jesus, to meet around the Lord's table, and to reflect on what he's done for us and what we need to do for him. For just a little while this morning, I want to talk about a story that comes in the Synoptic Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and in Luke. It's simply titled, Lord, Help My Unbelief. Lord, help my unbelief. Faith is something that we all need. This is something that we all want, and that when we have it, it needs to grow. It's got to flourish. It's got to get stronger. With that being said, before we go into our study, we want to set the context of this story. In Matthew chapter 17, we come at the end of the Mount of Transfiguration. If you remember on this occasion, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, three of his closest apostles, and they spent about a week or so on the Mount of Transfiguration. While they were there, Jesus and the apostles are visited by Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah were critical and monumental figures of the Old Testament. They were pillars of the Jewish faith. Moses, he represents the law, hence his name. The law is named after him. It is the law of Moses. And Elijah, he is thought to be the greatest prophet, so he represents the prophets. What is so interesting about this story is that Moses and Elijah, they had been dead or they had been off the earth for over hundreds of years by the time of this story. Peter, brilliant Peter, he's got a great idea. He says, Lord, let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then all of a sudden, God speaks from heaven and declares, this is my beloved son, speaking of Jesus, in whom I am well pleased, hear him. In this single statement, we learn two very important lessons. We learn of the authority and superiority of Jesus. He's not to be put on equal plane as Moses or Elijah or any other man. Jesus is greater. He is higher. He is above all. The second thing we learn is that the passing of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament was going to go away. This is a glorious moment in the ministry of Jesus. Couldn't you just picture God speaking from heaven? Jesus shining brighter than the sun. And all they can do is fall down and kneel before him. But what we're about to see is that where this story ends, the setting is unlike the one we're about to enter. The one that's about to begin. Jesus is about to leave the mountaintop of glory and he is about to enter the valley of worry. The valley of worry. So with that being said, let's go to Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when Jesus came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them. 
and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Jesus, he leaves the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, and there awaits the other nine apostles. They're seen arguing with the scribes. Jesus, he steps up, he walks up, he goes, what's going on here? What's the problem? And before he can even answer, before his question is even answered, a man comes forward. This man, he comes forward, he asks Jesus a question, he tells Jesus, I've got a son, he's, he's sick. He explains to Jesus his poor and pitiful state, and he says, I brought him to your disciples, you weren't here, I couldn't find you. They couldn't do it. One of the first lessons in our story that we see is that disciples, they disappoint. Disciples will disappoint us. This man, he brought his son to Jesus' disciples. These were supposed to be the people who could help him, and they could not. Now, you might be wondering, why couldn't they help him? What did he need? What was wrong with him? We learn of the state of his son. The son is in critical condition. Now, the King James Version says this son he struggles with, or he's struggling from, being a lunatic. You might be thinking, well, that's something in your mind. How, how do you fix that? Well, lunatic actually doesn't mean what you and I, or how you and I use it today. It comes from a Greek word that literally means to be moonstruck. To be moonstruck. What does that mean? It's defined as this. It is epilepsy being supposed or believed to return and increase with the increase of the moon. So it is epilepsy that, that's affected by the moon. That's why the New King James Version says he is an epileptic. So this is a big deal. He's got a, quite a dangerous disease. But it gets worse. The Bible says this. When you harmonize all of the gospel accounts, we learn a few things. This boy, he's possessed by a mute spirit. What one account calls a mute spirit, the other calls a demon. That's because unclean spirits in the New Testament are demons, and demons are unclean spirits. Now, the Bible says this was a mute spirit. That's really important. It was bad to be demonically possessed, no doubt. I don't have to explain that. But when you were possessed by a mute spirit... That was supposed to believe, you were supposed to believe that this was one doozy of a demon. The reason why I say that is because it was believed you could only cast out a demon unless you could call out its name, unless you knew its name. But this demon causes this boy, he can't talk. So it's viewed as if 
This is an impossible demon to cast out. The Bible goes on and says he's unable to speak or hear. He experiences epileptic fits and seizures. He foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth. The demonic spirit throws him, bruising him, causing him to cry. The demonic spirit throws him into the water and into the fire to kill him. And oh yeah, this is how he's been since he was a child. This is critical condition for this boy, for this son. Now, this life is full of sufferings. We know that. This life is difficult. You know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like to suffer. I don't have kids. I'm not married. But what I do know is this, or what I'd like to think or believe is this. It's one thing when you suffer. It's a whole other thing when your kid suffers. And you, there's nothing you can do to feel helpless and hopeless. The greatest thing we can do in those moments is pray. The greatest thing we can do in those moments is pray. But can't you just hear the desperation of this father? Can't you just hear his cry? He goes on to tell Jesus, I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. I brought them to your people. Your people are supposed to be able to do this. They couldn't. And we learn two valuable lessons here. The first is this. Disciples will disappoint. In the first century, the apostles disappointed some people. That's the same thing that happens today. Whether you've been in the church a long time, you've been a Christian a long time or a short time, maybe you're contemplating to become a Christian. Here's one thing we all got to understand. The church is perfect, but it is filled with imperfect people. The church is perfect, but it is filled with imperfect people. One of the most common reasons why people give up on Christianity or the church is because of other Christians. One man once said, the worst part of Christianity are, is the Christians. That's because sometimes we sin and we do things we know is wrong. But when you and I understand no one's perfect, we're all human, you won't be led to have some unrealistic expectation of a man or a woman that will set you up for disappointment. Disciples will disappoint. The question is, what will you do? We cannot give up on Jesus because of his imperfect disciples. I want to take a lesson real quick from a story you well know. There, is, there was a little man in the Bible. He was a short man. He was rich. He is named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, Jesus comes to town, and there is a large crowd gathering around, and everybody is crowding Jesus. He can't see Jesus, so you know what he did? He climbed up a tree. Can you imagine a grown man climbing up a tree? A little guy climbing up a tree just to see another man. Everybody in this room today has got to do the same thing he did. He literally had to get above the crowd to see the Christ. He had to rise above the group of imperfect people to focus on the perfect Lord. 
And that's what we all got to do today. How many times have you heard people say, the church is full of hypocrites, I'm not going, you know, I'm just going to leave. That doesn't really make any sense to me. You know why? The world is full of hypocrites. So you want to leave the church where there's a few, and you want to go to the world where they're all at. In this picture, when people let other people get in between them and God, that's exactly what happens. They get in between them and God. Virtually what they're saying is, God's here, here's the hypocrite, here's me who's walking away because the person in the middle. In this picture, the hypocrite's closer to God than you are. We can't give up on Jesus because of his imperfect disciples. This man did not give up, and we need to take that lesson from him. Jesus goes on and says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him and fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. Jesus gives one of the most stern rebukes in all of the Bible to, this, to these people. He says this is a faithless and perverse generation. In other accounts, he calls them wicked. He calls them adulterous. Well, hold up a second. The apostles are in this same group. So how can he call the apostles? How can he include them with a faithless and perverse generation? I thought they were the ones who believed in Jesus. Here's what this means. Jesus is not saying that the disciples did not believe in him at all. Instead, he was emphasizing their insufficient and or lack of faith. Just like he did in Matthew chapter 8 where he says, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? While it is true that the disciples possessed a degree of faith, it is also true that Jesus likens having little faith to having no faith at all. In Mark chapter 4, the Bible says, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? What we do when we put these two verses together, we see this. They're talking about the same story. Both of these verses occur when Jesus calmed the storms on the Sea of Galilee. In Matthew, he says they had little faith. In Mark, they said, he says they had no faith. And that is because little faith in the Bible is equivalent to having no faith. It leads to a self-reliant attitude. In other words, a lack of trust in God equals no trust in God. Because that's when people start to rely on themselves. So it is true they had little faith, but when you have little faith, you act like it's pretty much the same as no faith. Now, in saying this, we can see that the disciples had a problem of lacking faith throughout their time with Jesus. They were with him for over three years, night and day. They saw the miracles. They heard the teaching, but they made mistakes often. We learn that they were saved twice on the Sea of Galilee. We just read the verses. But number two, Jesus fed the 5,000. People don't really know this. It happened twice. It happened in Matthew chapter 14 and chapter 16. And in chapter 16 and verse 8, Jesus said, being aware of it, said to them, O oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? 
Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? He said, I'm doing the same thing over and over. You ain't getting it. Why do you doubt? There's some valuable lessons we can learn in this. Number one, the disciples of Jesus, they rarely ever learn something the first time around. That's extremely comforting. That is extremely comforting. I never, I hardly ever learn something the first time around. And as some of you guys know, I was trained by a couple different preachers before I was ordained. I predominantly spent my time with Brother Jimmy Cading. I spent time with Glenn Osborne, with Alan Bonifay, with Frank Brancato, with Greg Cardoza, with all these guys. I have different dynamics or relationships with each of them. With Jimmy, he's kind of like my Paul, Paul and Timothy. Now, with Alan, he's kind of like, I'm Timothy, but he's Paul the aged. He's old. So with Alan, he's kind of like my spiritual grandpa. And with Jimmy, he's kind of like a spiritual father figure of sorts. So Alan and I, we talk about the Bible often. And I can't tell you how many times I've called him and I said, such and such or whatever, this person... This person's been in the church 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 years. And I taught on this, and they said they'd never heard this before. Or they didn't understand this. That's crazy. And I go back and forth, and I go, how does this happen? You've got people who've been Christians longer. There's just an expectation of where someone should be. And Alan, he always tells me the same thing. He goes... Look, what you don't understand is that this is just the time thing. Very few people who are Christians, unfortunately, study the Bible. Very few people study the Bible. It's not that preachers are smarter or anything. It's just the time investment thing. When you spend more time on something, you got more time to chew on it. So it is true. When you talk to other people, this might be the third time they've ever considered this. What you need to do is chill out. And he's like ancient. He's like, I mean, I won't put a date on that. I won't put a number, but he's old. So he's talking on my level when he's telling me this. And you know what? He's right. But one of the most ironic things is having Alan Bonifay tell you to be patient or to chill out. That's when you know you're bad, when you're not chilling out, is when he's got to tell you, be chill. But he's right. Christians rarely ever learn something. It could be in the Bible. It could be a life lesson. Rarely learn the first time. That is comforting, but it's also convicting. Because Jesus, he would rebuke his disciples. He would tell them, you've been with me for three years. You're supposed to be learning this. How many times I got to teach you? That's the flip side. And I've just told you about my time with Alan. So I got to tell you about one story with Jimmy. With studying with Jimmy was just different. Now, we would study with people. We'd go to houses. We'd study at the building with people. And, you know, when I first started, I would just keep my mouth shut. I wouldn't talk. I'd just sit there with the pen and paper, and whoever he was studying with, I was writing down the question. I was writing down the answer. I wouldn't talk. But every now and then, he'd give a dog a bone, and he'd ask me a question. He'd give me a softball pitch. 
And he'd ask me, and I'd go, oh, da-da-da-da. Say, very good. I want to tell you on one occasion when it wasn't good. He asked me this question. He asked this sister this question in the study. She didn't get it right, so he goes, Isaac, do you want to take a shot at this? Do you know? And I go, oh, da-da-da-da-da. Da-da-da-da-da refers to Corbin in the New Testament. So look that up later. Corbin was the, was the question. And so I said my answer, and he very politely said, not quite. Not quite. And so I was like, man. But I was eager. I was excited. I learned. So I wasn't mad or sad or whatever. Fast forward some time. The same question came up about a few months later. Same question. We'd already been there, done that. Now it's my time. He goes, Isaac, do you want to take a chance at this? And I go, da 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 again. And I got it wrong again. And he looked, and instead of not quite, he said, that's the second time I've told you this. You're not paying attention. Listen and learn. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. You've been with me all this time. When you have a higher or a greater opportunity, there's a higher expectation. But to make matters worse, it's been a few years, I still don't know the answer to that question. But... In saying this, this truth, it's comforting, but it's also convicting. Wear the shoe, whichever one you are. Now, what is apparent in Jesus' frustration is that it was fair and it was warranted. Here's what I mean. The disciples had the power to cast out the demon. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, then Jesus appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. And to have powers to heal sickness and to cast out demons. They had the power. Okay, that's number one. Number two, the disciples had already performed such miracles before this story. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 7, And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two. Verse 13, or excuse me, verse 7, And gave them power over unclean spirits. Verse 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed oil with oil many who were sick and healed them. So they had the power to cast out demons. They'd already been doing it. So why couldn't they do it on this occasion? That's the question. At the end of the story, he answers it. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your go figure unbelief. Because of your unbelief, you couldn't cast out this demon or help this boy. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. He says, you had unbelief. You needed to have the faith of a mustard seed, and that plainly means the kind of faith, it starts out small, but it grows to an unimaginable height. It has small beginnings, but its end is far greater than it could have ever been imagined. If you had that kind of faith, you could have done this. You could have done this. And he teaches this from Matthew 13, 31, and 32. Now, one commentator or one scholar said this, 
So Jesus' disciples' previously effective ministry became ineffective because they had grown self-reliant, supposing that busyness and activity could substitute for humility, prayer, and worship of God. They stopped relying on God like they used to. And when they stopped relying on God, they didn't have the power anymore. Who do you trust? Who do I trust? Is our trust in ourselves, in ourselves, or is it in God? We learn another valuable lesson before we continue. That is, you cannot heal without help. You cannot heal without help. Before we can help other people, we first got to help each other or help ourselves. Jesus is likened to a physician or a doctor. Before you and I can tell other people about him, we got to go to the doctor first. We got to know what to do and we got to use his medicine. We've got to listen and obey. And then we will be able to help other people. Quick review up to this time, the apostles, their problem was they had unbelief, they had too much trust in themselves, and their prescription was, you just got to have the faith of a mustard seed, and it'll all be good. Now, what about the Father and the Son? Jesus picks up this story in Mark chapter 9 and verse 22. The Father says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The father says, if you can do this, please help us. And Jesus says, it's not a question whether or not I can do this. The question is whether or not you believe I can. Whether or not... You believe I can. That's what's going to make or break this situation. And this father, he gives one of the most humble cries. He's got faith, but he's also got doubts. He says, I believe in you. I know you can do this, but help with my unbelief. Help with the doubts that I have. Help with the doubts that I have have. Now, we learn a sixth lesson. Before you can help your children, you first got to help yourself. This father couldn't save his son unless he fixed his faith problem. It's the same with us today. In God's plan, the man, the father, he is the spiritual leader, he is the physical protector, and he is the provider of the home. It has been said in past, a child will not view God as their father until they first see God in their father. God has strategically put man in charge of the home because man is representative of God in the home. He is the one who is the disciplinarian. Hebrews chapter 12 says that God disciplines us like a father disciplines his child. Your father doesn't discipline your child? Ruining this picture. Jesus taught that prayer to God the Father is like when you ask your dad for something, and he's not going to give you a snake if you ask for bread or for a fish. But if we don't take care of our own, 
It's going to affect how our children affect God. Watch what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 and 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own family, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A man who doesn't take care of his family, he is worse than an unbeliever because he ruins the picture God intended in the home. Scriptures isn't the only thing that says this, so does statistics. One statistic said that when dad comes to Christ first, 93% of families will follow. If mom comes to Christ first, only 17% of families will follow. But if the children come to Christ first, only 3.5% of the rest of the family will follow. Fathers have a big impact on their children. Another statistic, this comes from the book Becoming Spiritual Soulmates with Your Child, written by Robert and Deborah Bruce. They came out with this. When both parents attend church, your child has a 72% chance of continuing. When it's only the father, 55% of children remain faithful. When it's only the mother, 15% of children remain faithful. And when it's neither parents, only 6% remain faithful. Before we can help our children, we got to first help ourselves. But then the story concludes in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. This son, he is in critical condition. He is in a sickening state. He had no hope. He was helpless. The disciples disappointed. They could not save him. But Jesus could and Jesus did. And this is where we find our seventh lesson Men will fail you, but Jesus never will. Men will fail you, but Jesus never will. Jesus, not Jesus, Jimmy used to have a saying he would tell me. He would say this, even the best of men are men at best. Even the best of men are men at best. I don't look up to any man more than Jesus. I don't look up to anybody. No one encourages me or motivates me like Jesus. And when we're all in that same way of thinking, no one could ever discourage you to a point of leaving. Because I'm not here for anyone else. You're not here for anyone else. That's how it's supposed to be. I can't be here, you can't be here because your mom, because your dad, because your brother, because your sister, because your uncle, because your aunt, because your husband, because your wife, because your boyfriend, because your girlfriend. It's got to be because of Jesus and only him. Only him. This story is a sermon teaching the necessity of faith. The disciples had unbelief. The father had unbelief. And it really teaches the importance of faith. Ryan taught on this. He spoke of this verse, Hebrews 11 and verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is God and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 
We must come believing. And we must have faith. Or else we're destined for failure. Now, for the last 10 minutes of our lesson, here's the big overarching application. Watch this. They, there are two problems, there are two parties in this story. There are the apostles and there is the father. They both had two different problems, but they have the same solution. The father, his problem was he had unbelief. He had too much doubt in God. Jesus said, if you believe, it'll all be okay. To the apostles, he says, because of your unbelief, you couldn't do this. Do you have too much trust in yourself? If you have the faith of a mustard seed, it'll all be okay. For the last 10 minutes, we're going to see the lesson that was needed for both parties. Regardless if you have too much doubt or you got too much trust in yourself, we got the same lesson for each and every one of us today. We got to build. We need to use the building blocks of belief. Building blocks of belief. Here's what we mean. The ABCs of spiritual growth. A, assess your attitude. Assess your attitude. You've heard me say this, and I'll say it again. Can't help a proud person. Can't do it. Won't do it. Doesn't matter how, how mad, bad you try or I try, you can't help someone who's proud or arrogant. It's the same thing with God. God can't help anybody who's proud or arrogant. In Psalm 10 and verse 4, the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Wicked people and arrogant people, they don't care about God. They ain't going to ask God what to do or how to do it or when to do it. They don't care. And that's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. There's not a lot of wise people, noble people, or rich people, or strong people who are Christians. He's not talking about emotionally. He's talking about in the worldly sense. It's very hard for an, a rich, affluent arrogant person who is a professor, who is a psychologist, who thinks they know everything, it's very rare for them to turn to God because they don't think they need God. What's our attitude like today? He doesn't say not any rich, noble, mighty, or wise. He says not many. There's a difference between any and many. What is our attitude like? B, he says we ought to build upon our beliefs. Before we read these few verses in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is a man who knew Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus gave him a sign. God gave him a sign that when you baptize the Messiah, the heavens are going to open, the Spirit's going to descend like in the form of a dove. That's how you'll know who to tell other people to go to. And guess what? That happened when Jesus was baptized. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John chapter 1 and verse 29. So John the Baptist, he learned that Jesus was the Messiah. Some time passes, and John the Baptist, he's in prison. And he's having some doubts about Jesus. So he's in prison, he's struggling, and the Bible says, when John heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, 
Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Pay attention to this. John the Baptist asked a yes or no question. What did Jesus say back? What do you think? He didn't say yes or no. He gave John the evidence. And he wanted him to come to his own conclusion. What we see is that healing the blind, the lame, and the deaf was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus could have just said, yeah, you're right. You got that. You're right. I am the Messiah. But he didn't. He said, here's the evidence. You come to the conclusion. The reason why that's so important is because our faith is always stronger when you convince yourself. Not when someone else convinces you. What Jesus did is he turned John to the scriptures. These are the verses that prophesy about this. Here are the signs. Go to the scripture. What we do to build upon our beliefs, you got to read and study. Not a new, nothing new. We got to read and study. We got to hear God's word. Now, after we build upon our beliefs, here's what we got to do. Let her see. We got to consider the critics. There are a lot of parents, they get worried when their children ask questions. Questions are good. It shows that they're thinking. It shows that they're contemplating, that they're reasoning. As Christians, we need to ask ourselves questions like this. Is there a God? Is the Bible inspired? Is Jesus Lord? Did Jesus rise from the dead? I want to confront the criticism about the Bible. I want to confront the criticism about Jesus. I need to answer the objector. So do all of us. I have it in bold. We want to focus on this question for our example. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If you ever have that question, did Jesus rise from the dead, you would go to 1 Corinthians 15 to learn of the answer. Paul talks about this in depth, but he uses a very interesting tactic. It's called the reduction to absurdity argument. There were people who challenged that the resurrection was real, that we were all going to go to heaven, that you're going to get a new body, or that there's life after death. So Paul, he talks about the absurdity if it wasn't true. In 1 Corinthians 15, watch this. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, so he acknowledges the critic. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not raise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we of all men are most pitiable. 
Don't ask questions. That's all that Paul did. He acknowledged what the critics said. He said, you guys believe there's no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, Jesus isn't raised from the dead. You're not going to get raised from the dead. You're still a sinner. You're going to hell, and we're not going to heaven, and we're wasting our time. Why do we serve God? We're the hopeless of all men. He acknowledged the critics throughout all of this, and we need to do the same today. He used the reduction to absurdity argument. He goes, after all this, you really think we'd go and suffer all these things for a lie? No. Consider the critics, and your faith will grow. Lastly, our last point is this. The last thing we have to do as Christians, letter D, is develop your defense. Develop your defense. Peter would say in 1 Peter 3 and 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for, that, for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Here's what Peter's not saying. I'm sorry I believe in God. I'm sorry I believe in Jesus. Because this word defense comes from the Greek word apologia, which was where we get the word apologetics. He's not saying you got to apologize for what you believe. That word means to defend with arguments. Why you believe and do what you do and why I do what I do. This is why Christians, when they go to college, struggle. Because they don't know why they believe what they believe. All of us have people in our lives that say, you do it that way? You think you're the only ones going to heaven? One loaf and one cup? The list goes on and on and on. If it hasn't happened to you yet, I can assure you it will. Do you have an answer? Do we have an answer? We need to study ourselves approved unto God, a worker who is not ashamed. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. If we want to have faith that's going to endure this life and overcome all things, we got to have the building blocks of belief. we got to assess our attitude, build upon the beliefs we already have, Consider the critics and develop our defense. With all of this being said, this story ends in a happy way. Jesus saves the day, and he can save the day today. Maybe you're here today and are not yet a Christian. The Bible gives a very simple plan. All you got to do is hear God's word, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and live faithfully. Live faithfully. Maybe you're here and you've not, or you already have done this, and you need prayers. We'd love to help you regardless of your need. Please come while we stand and sing the song of invitation.